Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 once again. And we began a sermon last week, but because of various things that we did last time, we didn't uh, get too far. But we're going to finish that sermon today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 16 through 23, as we continue our march through the book of 1 Corinthians. Some of you may have heard of the of Homer and Langley Collier. Collier. Uh, they were uh, the sons of a very wealthy doctor back in New York. Uh, a number of decades ago. Uh, the doctor had left them a lot of money, a, a nice house and so forth, but the boys were very odd. Uh, they never left the house. They became hermits. They lived in the house all the time. Nobody ever saw them. They pad- padlocked the doors. They excluded all people uh, from their uh, fellowship. And then on March 21st, 1947, someone reported to the police that they thought maybe someone had died in the house. And so the police broke in and found uh, one of the boys, Homer, a dad on his bed with a clutching to his chest a newspaper, even though he was, had been totally blind for years. Uh, they started looking around. Of course, he had been dead for a bit, but they started looking around. And he was, he was, the, the boys were what we would call today hoarders. The house was stacked from top to bottom with papers and magazines and, and junk and paper, all sorts of, of things, useless things. The house was just filthy. And so uh, they, they took Homer out, and they began to clean out the house and, and dig everything out of there and throw it away. And after a while, they, they, they found a horrifying thing. They found the other brother, Langley, buried underneath a bunch of rubble, and he'd been there perhaps for months or maybe even years, dead in the house. And they, t- they saw Langley there, so they took him out as well, of course, and they found that he had died of a booby trap. He had set up a booby trap to keep anybody from getting into the house and stealing their precious junk. And instead, he had fallen into, into his own trap. It had killed him uh, perhaps uh, many, decades, many years before that. Uh, the interesting thing is that here were two boys that had all the resources they needed to live a very comfortable, even a very uh, luxurious life, but they lived like paupers. Uh, they, they, they lived as if they had nothing whatsoever. They, they had a lot at their disposal, they lived on the scraps of life. And that fits well, that as a parable, right into where we're going today. Paul's writing to a church at Corinth that had it all. They had all the, the resources, all the riches that they could possibly have, and yet they were living in spiritual poverty. And the reason they were doing so is because they did not know who they were. So Paul begins to write to this people, and he says, there's something seriously wrong at this church and it goes back to your identity. As he moves forward, he gives them some very direct instructions and, and uh, rebukes as well. He is, first of all, before he moves in that direction, he's telling them who they are and what their identity is in Christ. Uh, there's four uh, pieces of identity he points to that they have, and you and I have if you're a Christian. Uh, and the one we looked at last week was found in verse 16, that they are the temple of God, verse 16 says this, do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Uh, the key word here, a key phrase is, do you not know? As I said last time, that, that phrase is mentioned ten times in the book of 1 Corinthians and only one other time in all of Paul's writings. Uh, the, the, this indicates to us that the problem they had is they did not know. They did not know what they needed to know to live the life that God wanted them to live. They did not know they were the temple of God. As I said, the temple here is, it, there's more than one word for temple in the Greek. There's two particular ones, but this is the one for sanctuary. It, it corresponds with the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, 
where God's uh, glory would reside in that regard. And so they were the sanctuary of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in them. Do you not know that, he says. So apparently they did not. And remember the context in chapter 3 is not individuals. Chapter 6, verse 19, he says to the individual Christian, you are the temple of God. God lives in you as a, as a person, individually, if you are his. But in this context, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the collective church. And he's saying that as the church, the universal church, but the local church, the local church that is faithful to God, the local church that is biblically uh, solid proclaiming his truth, that church is indwelt by God. He says, you are the sanctuary, the temple of God. And the danger here, he says in verse 17, is that if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy he, you are him, in the, what it says in the verse, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So his immediate application here is, if, you're going to, if you do damage to the church of God, and that word destroy can mean to spoil or mar or pollute. If you, if you damage in some way the temple of God, he says God gets active and he will destroy you in the process. For so the temple of God is holy it's holy, it's set apart for him. That's what that word means. The, temp, the church is set apart for God's glory. It, it's a holy entity because it belongs to God. And if you pollute it, if you harm it, and he's not talking about from the outside in persecution, but from the inside in sinfulness, then God will get actively involved in your life in a very negative way. He will pollute you. He will mar you. That's a pretty, dang, a pretty uh, serious thing, I think, for us to consider but he says the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Remember, back in verse 10, speaking of the church once again, he says at the very end, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. So he's talking about the church, and we must be very careful, and this is a positive statement, very careful how we build on the church of Christ. We, we all are gifted by the Holy Spirit. We all are placed in a particular location, a particular local church. We all are part of a local body of Christ. And as a result of that, we are to be very careful how we build on that structure of the church. We have a part to play. We need to be careful about that. But in verse 17, he goes to the negative, And he says, you be very careful you don't do damage to the church. Because if you do damage to the church, then, uh, then the Lord will get involved in your life as well in the way of polluting or marring or bringing damage into your life. And so as I closed out last time, I think I closed with a, a quote from Vance Havner. Some of you old-timers will remember Vance Havner. He was real good at these little piffy things. But he says, The church of Christ is never damaged so much by the woodpeckers on the outside as the termites on the inside. And I think that's uh, well said. Uh, he is not talking here about persecution. He's not talking about unbelievers coming and doing damage to the church. He's talking about those so-called Christians, as he'll deal with that going through, that do damage to the church of Christ. They're the termites, so to speak. And let us not follow in that direction, but rather be those that build on the church of Christ. So that's our first point. Uh, well, first identity, the, the central one, you are the temple of God individually. And as a church, we are the temple of God. We need to know that. Secondly, uh, we need to know that we are wise. Did you know that? You're wise. Verse 18 says this. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, 
He must become foolish so that he may become wise. Paul has already spent a great deal of time talking about the wisdom of the world in opposition to the wisdom of God. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with that quite often, and he's dealing with it one more time here. Uh, he says the philosophy of the world, the world view of, of, of those who are unbelievers is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of God. And now he comes back to that thought one more time. Our wisdom is not of the world, but from God. He mentions the word wise or wisdom, if you notice these verses 18, 19, and 25 different times in three verses. So this is what his subject is, the wisdom of God. Now he's already told us that the wisdom of God is at our disposal. So I want you to mention, notice that chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. We can have the wisdom of God, the insights of God on how to live life. And he's talked about that. Now he wants us to recognize two more things before he closes out that subject. He wants us to recognize in verse 18 that the wisdom of humans and the wisdom of God are not compatible. Now these verses, while they're not normally the ones people quote and really concentrate on, are absolutely essential in our life as Christians and in our life as a church. The wisdom of, of humans and the wisdom of God are not compatible. Look at that verse 18 again. No, let no one deceive himself. Now here's the thing. This is a church that's under deception. This is a church that was constantly deceiving itself. This is a church that thought it, that it could uh, absorb the wisdom of the world and, and, and bring it in and combine it with the wisdom of God and make a better structure than God had given them. And Paul says, look, you're deceiving yourself. You're harming yourself because you're self-deceived. You do not know what you're doing here. So if any man among you thinks that he's wise, so you think you're wise in this age? You think you've got it together? You think you're a philosopher in this age? You think you understand the, the world's system, the world's structure, the world philosophy? Let me tell you something. He said, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now that's a strong statement, isn't it? I mean, who, who says that but God? You must become foolish if you want to be wise. That means the wisdom of the world is not simply another stroke or another option. It means that until you recognize that it's, it's opposing the wisdom of God, you'll never know the wisdom of God. That's hard stuff, strong stuff. People have got around that in recent years by the banner, and I've mentioned this, I think, recently, the, the, the idea of all truth is God's truth. In 1977, a professor at Wheaton College wrote a book called All Truth is God's Truth. That mantra has been picked up at Wheaton College. has become their unofficial model at the, at the school, All Truth is God's Truth, and it's spread throughout evangelicalism. Uh, now, it's one of those statements that on the one hand, we, it, it makes sense, right? All truth is God's truth. Anything that is true ultimately emanates from God, right? So nobody wants to argue with that. The problem is when we make this blanket statement, all truth is God's truth, and we don't have an objective standard to compare it to, how do we know it's really true? How, how, how can you know that it's true if God's word doesn't say it's true? I mentioned uh, on Wednesday night recently going through this issue of the Enneagram, uh, which is a new philosophy that is not biblical, that a particular guy named Todd Wilson, who is a very fine theologian pastor, 
I wrote a book called The Enneagram Goes to Church in which he, he decided to bring the Enneagram into his church, a large church, uh, and make it part of their, their ministry. He mentions in his book, in the first couple chapters, that it's not found anywhere in scripture and it has no validity in science or medicine or anything else. And yet he says, I want to bring it into the church because after all, all truth is God's truth. You see how that works? Once you open that door to say, well, you know, I can, I can bring in this philosophy of the world into the church because all truth is God's truth. But how do you determine it's God's truth? Only by filtering it through the word of God and the wisdom of God. Could you possibly do that? So Paul says they're self-deceived here. Secondly, not only is the wisdom of humans and the wisdom of God not compatible, secondly, he goes even further in verses 19 and 20, and he says the man's wisdom is useless. That's a strong statement. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, and remember the Greek word there is moronic, moron, moronic, he says, the, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. There's not a lot of wiggle room, is there? He says, the wisdom of this world is useless. Now, he's not talking about the many wonderful benefits that the unbelieving world have discovered and given us. There are many things, we could tick off dozens of them very quickly, of good things the Lord has allowed people to discover and to know and benefits that we come from that. He's talking about, not those things, he's talking about a worldview. The understanding of salvation, the understanding of life. And he's saying all that, all that the world comes up with philosophically, apart from the Word of God, not filtered through the Word of God, is not helpful not another option. It is useless. Useless. Don't go out there and get a degree in philosophy thinking you're going to get a, get a better under handle on life. That wisdom is useless. And if anybody here has taken the graduate courses in philosophy, you find that out very quickly. Uh, when I was doing that years ago, I discovered very quickly how every philosopher who came along disagreed with the last one. And each fad went through the centuries. These are, this is useless he says, for salvation, it's useless for living life to the glory of God. And what you need then is the wisdom of God that's only found in the Word of God. So that's where he's shoving them back to at this time. If you don't do that, people end up getting caught in their own trap. And that's exactly what one of the Collier brothers did, right? Set up a trap to catch somebody who might steal his junk, ended up being killed by his own trap. Don't set up a trap philosophically, a worldview-wise for yourself. Uh, turn to the Word of God. The Word of God has the wisdom you need. The Word of God is sufficient to, for life and godliness. And God tells us that. As we leave this section, though, I want you once again notice he says, Let no, no man deceive himself. Uh, don't, don't, get, don't get arrogant. Don't get proud. Don't deceive yourself. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 13 with me. I want to look at a, a biblical illustration of, of deception that is very, very similar to what the Corinthians were going through. First, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Here we're looking at the church of Laodicea. Jesus is speaking to them. 
And notice the similarities between what he says to them and, and what is being said to the Corinthians. In verse 14 it reads, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, that's Jesus in verse 14. He's got something to say. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I, I believe the interpretation of verses 15 and 16 is not that he's saying, I wish you were a, a lousy Christian or a really on fire Christian. That's a misinterpretation of that passage. In, in the area of Laodicea, they had both hot springs and cold springs. And the cold water was good for drinking and different things. The hot springs were good for bathing. Lukewarm water was good for nothing. And that's what he's saying. Don't be good for nothing. <laughs> I'll spit you out of my mouth. But then he goes on and tells them why they are what they are. He says, because you say, and notice they say this, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you not, do not know. Now notice that same phraseology as we found in 1 Corinthians. You do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Isn't that an awful statement? To be in spiritual poverty, to be spiritually poor and blind and miserable and not know it. Uh, I, I think it's, that's one step beyond simply being miserable in your spiritual life. It's one thing to be miserable and, and blind and poor. It's another thing not to know it. This church didn't know it. Why? Because they had absorbed the world's philosophies around them and they were, did not know the wisdom of God. Let's go back to our passage of Scripture then and look at a third identity that the Lord wants to pinpoint for us. We see the identity of the fact that we are the temple of God. We see the identity that we have the wisdom of God. Thirdly, we are possessors of all things. Possessors of all things. He has two thoughts here in that regard. First of all, boasting in people have no place in the body of Christ. Verse 21, he says this, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Now he's going back to chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. And there, remember, they were in, in big conflict over who was better, Paul or Peter or Apollos or uh, so forth. And, and they had this, these factions going on in the church based upon uh, following certain men. And so now for one last time, he's going back to that, and says, stop boasting in people. Boy, I wish, uh, I wish the evangelical community could buy into that a little bit. Our celebrityism today is killing us. Uh, all these big names that are doing things that are doing harm to the cause of Christ morally and, and, uh, and uh, other ways, all sorts of ways that are causing harm today and people following them like dogs. Look, there's only one person we should boast in and that's Jesus Christ. That's his point in these first three chapters. We boast in Christ. He is our, our celebrity. He's the one we follow. No one else do we follow. Now we can appreciate other people. And we do. We, we appreciate the writings and the ministries and the lives of fellow Christians and, and people that, that do things that, that enhance our spiritual walk. Do that. That's great. Respect them. Appreciate them. Don't boast in them. Don't become followers or disciples of any man or woman. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We boast in Him. 
And he says concerning that, he says, for all things belong to you. And now, go, now he goes on down. He, he's building something. A little confusing here, so I hope I can unravel it for you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Now he starts off with these men. And he says, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Now here's what I think he's saying. Don't boast in these men. Don't become disciples of these men. These men have been given to the church as gifts. Remember Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11? God has given gifted men to the church to build the church. Including apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists. Here's a perfect example. These are great men. These are gifted men. These, these are actually gifts to the church. They belong to the church. God has given them. But you don't boast in them. You don't follow them. You follow Christ. But he goes on a little further. He, he not only says don't boast in people and all things belong to us. But, but I want you to notice he goes on down at five different items that he mentions. It just seemed to be a list of, of things. Until you meditate on them a little bit and think about them a little bit, you miss the glorious riches of these words. Notice what he says. He says, or the world, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. What in the world is he talking about? Gordon Fee uh, has written a very excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians says that these are the five ultimate tyrannies of human existence. These are five things that are, are tyrants in the lives of people that cause them great fear and great anxiety and great hurt. So let's look at those and then see what he says about it. First of all, there's the world. You see, the world's a, a, a tyrant because the world wants us to be like it. 1 John chapter 2 says the world wants to conform us to its image. The world wants to draw us after it. The world wants us to be like it. The world never wants us to be satisfied. The world always, always wants us to want more and never be satisfied with what we have. And so the world is a tyrant. So is life at times. You know, life can be overwhelming, can it? Life can be difficult. Life can be hard full of sorrows and tragedies and disappointments. It can be good, too. It can be very enjoyable. But in this life, as long as we're here, as long as we're in this corrupt world, we're going to face the difficulties and the challenges of life. Everybody in this room right now has some challenge going on, don't you? If we'd be honest, you know, pay, send a piece of paper around, you write down your, your biggest challenges right now, uh, we could fill up reams of papers, I think. And that's the way it is. And that's why the Lord uses these trials and difficulties. He even sang about them today. To draw us to Him, not to push us away. But life is a tyrant. And it, sometimes it overwhelms us. Death. If you think life is bad, what about death? Death keeps us in fear, according to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, death looms ahead. Everybody's going to die. Unless the Lord comes back first. If that is a reality that shapes our thinking. That's a reality that shapes the present. Marsha and I were traveling through uh, uh, west uh, here recently, out in Nebraska. And I passed, we passed a cemetery that had a sign out 
in front. It says, it said, uh, cemetery plots, pre-need cemetery plots for sale. Somehow the the term pre-need just caught me funny. You know, I wouldn't be reading that if I had a post-need, right? (laughs) It it has to be somehow a pre-need. But the, but the, the concept is right. The idea is you are going to die. And you are going to need a plot. And we'll sell it to you now before you need it. That's pretty good, uh, pretty good advertisement, I guess. I didn't stop, but uh, I guess I could have. Uh, we all know it's looming up ahead. We put it off, uh, especially if we're young. I can't die. I'm young. I'm healthy. Can't you? You could. We know a lot of people that have, right? As we get older, we get a little more realistic about that. But somehow deep inside, there was one of the poets who said, nobody really believes in their own death. Everybody really believes in their own immortality until we die. And the scripture tells us that we're all appointed to, to die and face judgment. So death is a tyrant, isn't it? It, 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 it keeps us in a realm of, of fear if we don't know Christ. How about the next one? Things present, he says. The, uh, things present are, are often more than we can handle. You, you might be facing right now things you don't know how to handle. And then there's things to come, which are a mystery. I, what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know? No, you don't. What's going to happen with your life? What's, what's the future? I was even thinking about that recently. If, if I knew what was going to happen six months from now or a year from now, would I want to know? Probably not. All right? These things are mysteries. We don't know these things. But he says all these tyrannies, all these tyrants, they all belong to you. I think his implication here is that uh, we need not live in fear of these tyrants because in reality, they belong to us. And here's why. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. You probably have it memorized. We are overwhelmingly conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. Why are these five tyrants not completely overwhelming us? Because we know Christ. And that's where he leaves us off in the final verse. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Four different identities then. We are the temple of God. We are wise in the wisdom of God. We, have, we possess all things. And finally, we belong to Christ. It all wraps up right there. Verse 23. It's an unbroken chain that leads us to the throne of God because Christ belongs to God. See, if we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God then living in anxiety over the issues of life shouldn't, shouldn't take place. Living, absorbing the wisdom and the philosophies of the world shouldn't be what we do. If we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God, our whole life is wrapped around Jesus Christ. But more than that, we, we belong to Him. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It, it can go two ways. On the one way... It tells us we are the servants of Christ. He doesn't serve us in that sense. We serve him. And we're happy to do so. We're followers of Jesus Christ because we belong to him. Uh, We belong to another. We rule to be ruled. But there's another way of looking at this as well. We belong to Christ. You get the difference in inflection there? When someone belongs to you, 
Isn't that a special thing? You that have children, and, and like the little Cornelius baby, born today or yesterday, I'm not sure which, have we figured that out yet? Yeah. We know it's alive and well, and that's all that matters. So uh, this little one now belongs to, to Joe and Sarah. It's her little one. It belongs to them. They'll get to take that little baby home in a couple of days. It belongs to them. And they'll take it home because it's precious. It is more precious than anything else that they could ever possibly have. That child, those, those children, they belong. And so when he says here, you belong to Christ, it's not just a, a thing about we follow him and we obey him. We do that. But we do that because we belong to him. It, we, he, we are precious in the sight of Jesus Christ. He is ours and we are his. Paul often then turns to this issue of identity or who we are in Christ. And he's made a wonderful case here. Before he moves on in this passage of scripture to talk to this church about all sorts of things that need to be talked about, that needs to be talked about with them, he is going to have to say, first of all, I've got to lay a foundation. Until you know who you are, you can legalistically obey some rules. You can go through the system. You can follow, you know, be religious. But until you know who you are, you'll never live as God wants you to live. You are the temple of God. You are possessors of the wisdom of God. You're the possessors of all things. And you belong to Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer once wrote in his book, That Incredible Christian, he said that God has placed before his redeemed children a vast world of spiritual treasures and that they refuse or neglect to claim them may easily turn out to be the second greatest tragedy in the history of moral creation, the first and the greatest being the fall of man. That's kind of a sobering thought, isn't it? The greatest of all tragedies in human existence is the fall of man in, in the Garden of Eden. He thinks the second greatest is to have all these spiritual treasures that God has given us as Christians and neglect them. And so I trust that we won't fulfill Tozer's prophecy there. I trust as we look at what God has for us and has told us in his scriptures here that we'll say, look, here is who I am. Here is what God has made me to be. And I'm vastly rich beyond all comparison because I'm rich in Christ and I belong to him. There's, there's one caveat, though. Maybe some of you don't belong to Christ. Uh, maybe you're religious. Maybe you're even a church member. Maybe you're a good person. But you've never recognized your sinfulness. And, 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 and recognizing that sinfulness, you've turned from that to faith in Jesus Christ for the gift of salvation that he offers to give you. If today you're in that situation, you have never truly turned to Christ for the gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone. We invite you today to do that. Make, make this the day, the day when we have uh, two-thirds of our congregation gone because of, of uh, the COVID spread and so forth and the cautiousness we're taking today. This could be a great day. A day that where you at home, where most of you people are, or those that are right here, could look deep into your own heart and say, you know what? I have been self-deceived. I've looked into the mirror of God and I saw what I wanted to see. But now I look into the mirror of God and I see what God says is there. And I need Christ to forgive me of my sin. If that's your case, turn to him right now. And see us today or anytime that we can show you more about how to know Jesus Christ 
as your own Savior. Father, we now come before you and we thank you for the word that you've given us. This glorious truth that uh, we have proclaimed today about who we are in Christ. Lord, we are rich beyond all, all understanding. And yet we often live as if we are not. Lord, forgive us. Strengthen us. Be with us. Help us to have eyes that are open to the glories of yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.